0: As we begin this morning, I want to ask you a question, that is this, how did you learn to pray? How did you learn to pray? Now, that may seem like a bit of an odd question, but think about it for a minute. How did you learn to pray? See, one of the most astonishing things about prayer is the fact that it can be taught and it can be learnt. Think about what we see in the Gospels. Jesus' disciples are with Him. They see Him teach. They see Him heal. They see Him show love and kindness to all kinds of people. And yet, one of the first questions they ask Him is not, Help us to teach like You. Can You give us power to heal like You? Will You work something in our hearts so we will love others like You? One of the first questions they ask is, Lord, teach us to pray. Such was the difference, the, the power, the genuineness of the life of prayer of Christ that his disciples asked him, teach us to pray even as you pray. And Jesus did not uh, get mad at them for asking that question, not make fun of them as if you, you, can't, be, you can't be taught how to pray, you just have to, just to figure it out on your own. No, he, he answered the request right there and then and told them, this is how you should pray as people in God's kingdom. So again, what about us? Who taught us to pray? Well, I hate to say it, but at least speaking for myself, um, and what I see statistically speaking, I doubt many of us learn to pray from Jesus. I doubt many of us learned uh, from his word and the instructions he gives us and the example of his own life, that that's where we learn to pray because our prayer life typically does not match up to his. He is one who routinely spent hours in prayer before sunrise and frankly it's hard for us to get 10 people to come for less than an hour of prayer each week. Why is our prayer life so different from that of our saviors? Well I think it's because we we haven't really learned to pray. Haven't really learned what prayer is like. Most of us have learned a kind of Christianese prayer language and platitudes to pray in prayer. A lot of Christian verbiage that's repeated over and over and over again and can certainly be genuine, but nevertheless keeps us in a rote because we think that is what prayer must sound like. And unfortunately has not served us well. Instead, we often find prayer awkward. We find it odd and confusing and we don't really know how to keep it up for more than a few minutes at a time. So what do we do? How do we change? How do we learn better how to pray? Well, the simple answer is do what Jesus' disciples did and say, Lord, teach us to pray. And the way God is going to do that is to help us look to his word and see not only how Jesus prayed, but how other godly people prayed. And this morning, as we think about that that need of of prayerfulness, one of the things we want to do is to look and see how the Apostle Paul prayed, not only for himself, but for others. Because if we know how to pray for others, invariably we're going to know how to pray for ourselves. Now what we have here really is uh, an extended section uh, of prayer. We're only going to look at the first few verses this week, and next week we will finish off the section, and what we see is basically a prayer in to. Parts. We see Paul saying, this is what I pray for you, and now this is what I'm going to continue to pray for you. And so this morning what we have is Paul writing to the Colossians saying, this is what I pray when I think of you. Let's see if we can learn something about prayer from this Apostle Paul as we read beginning in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. May God bless the reading of his word. Again, between these verses, verses three through eight and what we will see next week in verses nine through 14, what we see ultimately is that it is The message of the gospel that drove Paul's prayer life. It is the message of the gospel of Christ that he had committed not only to sharing, but had so taken into his life and his thinking and his emotions that they also drove how he prayed for himself and other Christians. Specifically this morning, what we see is that the gospel drove him to thankfulness in prayer. So if you want maybe a hook from which to, to hang your thoughts for the entirety of this message, I would say this. We are going to see that gospel fruit brings gospel gratitude. Gospel fruit brings gospel gratitude. In other words, when you see the gospel message, when you understand it and you see the effects that it is having in your life, in the lives of others, you should not help but be able to go to God in gratitude and thankfulness before Him. And so as we look at this prayer, we want to see four things, and the first of which is that very thing, the persistence of gospel gratitude. The persistence of gospel gratitude. We see this from verse 3. Notice how Paul begins. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now, frankly, we could take the entire service just on that verse. Almost every single word is important to us as an example to follow. Uh, But we're not going to do that today. We're just going to take a few minutes. Uh, So let me go quickly and say, first of all, what we need to see is that we are reminded to whom Paul is writing and therefore for whom he is praying. He says he is writing to people, he is thanking God for people who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the R, the R in the verse. These are Paul's brothers and sisters in the faith. It is our Lord Jesus Christ.
1: They have
0: they have had a common experience of salvation through the common gospel of Christ, and are now living under his common Lordship. It is because of this experience that they have had with the gospel, Paul is thankful to God. And this is the very crux of this whole section, and that is this that Paul is thankful. This entire section is permeated with this attitude of thankfulness. and That, of course, raises the question, are we thankful? Not just are we thankful in general, but are we thankful in our prayers? See, Paul here tells us, I'm thankful, and what what we're going to see in the next few years is what specifically he is thankful for. But before we can even get to that, we need to ask ourselves, are we a thankful people? In this context, Paul is expressing his thankfulness not just because he wants to tell us something about himself, it is because it comes in the context of a letter sent to a church that is being threatened by false teaching. And the thread of that false teaching uh, came down to essentially this. We are glad you have Jesus. He is the Savior. He is great. He is magnificent. But if you really want to know God, if you really want to be close to Him, if you really want the fullness of spiritual life, you've got to have something more than just Jesus. Jesus gets you in, but He doesn't take you all the way. And Paul is writing to them to say, When I look at you and the faith you have in Jesus Christ, I am thankful. Why? Because you have everything that you need. Even by his attitude of thankfulness in this letter, Paul is undercutting the false teaching that is coming to the Colossians. They're they're being told you need something more, and Paul says, no, you don't need anything more. And I'm thankful that you don't need anything more. But Paul doesn't just write to them thankful for who they are and for the fullness they have in Christ, Paul says that there is a, a posture of thankfulness that permeates all of his prayers. We always thank God when we pray for you, Paul says. For him, thanksgiving is not just the kind of prayer that you offer before you eat a meal or when, when God obviously does something good for you. He is always thanking God for what he sees in the Colossian Christians so again it it comes back to this question how thankful are we in prayer is it the case that our prayer is only driven by what we need don't get me wrong prayer at its heart is talking to God and Jesus tells us to ask God for things James even says you have not because you ask not and when you do ask you ask it with wrong motives to spend it on your passions And so certainly, it is not wrong to ask God for things. In fact, to be honest, one of the things I love about the society in which we're in is is the almost immediate transfer of information. Last night, there was a prayer request on my heart, and in about 30 seconds of typing and a click of the mouse, over 70 people had that prayer request and were praying for me and for my family. I love that. I love that. But that can't be all that my prayer life is made of. That can't be the only component of what we do, simply asking and asking and asking. Asking is good. And again, the, the, the speed in which we can communicate is even something to be thankful for. I mean, just think about that in the context of, you know, a hundred years ago. You had missionaries going to where missionaries had never been before. On the very edge and frontier of, of kingdom expansion. And they would write a letter home saying, uh, we have these needs and these difficulties, please pray for us. And it would take three months for the letter to get home. Three months! Within 90 seconds, I had my first response to my email saying, we'll be praying for you. Can you imagine the missionaries on the field waiting three months and still not getting a letter back for another three months to hear someone say, we received your letter and are praying for you. Six months go by before they ask someone to pray for them and they know that it's coming. And yet, again, are we only asking for what we need? Is that the only way that we pray? If our prayer is only driven by our needs, then our prayer life falls short of both the apostolic example we have in Paul as well as the example we have in Christ himself. For both of these men, prayer was much more than that, not least of which when it comes to this idea of Thanksgiving. We don't have time to go to this morning, but look to the Gospels and look at Jesus' prayers. Look at the kinds of things he prays for. Look at how he prays. Look at Luke 10 and John 11, and what you will three, see is Christ very specifically thanking God his Father for what he sees him doing in the world. He doesn't just ask his Father for things, he also thanks God for things. And again, Paul says whenever he prays for these Christians, he expresses his thankfulness to God. Now, that is a challenge for us. Because the impression, at least that I'm left with, is is not the kind of fallback position that we often give ourselves when it comes to praying and say something like, well, I will pray for that as, as the Lord brings it to my mind. We know what that means, doesn't it? I'm not going to burden myself to actually write this down, put it on my calendar, put it on my day timer, make myself remember to pray for this. In the midst of my, my scattered brain, if this if this random thought happens to hit me, oh yeah, so and so was sick and needed prayer, then I'll get to it. Right? I Maybe mean, am I wrong? Maybe I'm just confessing my own sin here. That's not the impression I get from Paul. Paul says, Whenever we pray for you, we always thank God for you. That says in my mind, that Paul had a pretty massive prayer list. Whether it was written down or whether he was a man who just remembered the cities in which he went and the faces of the names of those that he shared the gospel with and was able to recall and pray, there was a constant batting order to his prayer requests. Uh, there was somebody always uh, in the batter's box and someone else uh, queued up uh, uh, waiting on the sidelines, warming up in his mind and he was praying for them over and over and over and over and over, and over again. That's a challenge to us, isn't it, that we should follow that example and not just take a kind of shotgun approach to our prayer requests. Whatever we think of, we'll pray for. But to be more consistent, especially especially in praying for God's people. Say, say how do I do that? Well, the easiest thing to do is to just look around this room. If, if you are a member of this church, you have brothers and sisters in Christ who have, who have said we are committed to one another as, as a local church. Write their names down. Keep it in your Bible. And when you get up in the morning or you have your lunch break or whenever you read the Bible, I hope you read every day. If not, find another place to put your prayer request list. But if you read the Bible, even a verse, what is that verse saying? How can I turn that into a prayer for maybe one or two or three people on this list? And, and, and you, you, you make a little line on your list. And the next day, you make another line. And the day after that, you make another line. And you just keep working through your list of people to pray for. And then you start back over with the second line to the top and, and and you keep going. Paul Paul was disciplined and specific and intentional in how he prayed for Christians. And and we should do the same. But secondly, the challenge is also to be thankful. God doesn't just or excuse me, Paul doesn't just ask God for something for these people. He thanks him for what he has already given them. Now, why should we do this? Well, two reasons. First of all, it creates within us a spirit of humility and dependence. It helps us to remember that if we have something, it didn't come from our hand, it came from God's hand. Regardless of the genetics that were involved, the reason why I have a a, a four-week-old, healthy, beautiful baby girl is because God did that for us. He was in the midst of that. He was the one who knit her together in her mother's womb. Not anything that I did. And so, when I see her, I don't say, Man, Melinda, we did great. Look at this. This is amazing. Nobody's girl was that cute. Come on. No, we don't say that, do we? I mean, we might. But we say, God, we thank you for this precious gift you've given to us. It teaches us that we are to be humble and dependent upon God, but more than that, it gives him the glory he deserves. If God has done the thing, should not he receive the praise for it? If you are working side by side with someone at work, And you are working your tail off because you want to do a good job for your boss. And the boss comes by and sees the guy next to you and he gets the praise for what you've done. Wouldn't you be a little indignant about that? How much more so God who is superintending everything to the degree that when something good is happening in our life, we don't point to ourselves, we don't point to others, we point to him and say, "Oh God, you have done this thing and we are thankful. We are thankful for it. This is the heart of these verses, this spirit of thankfulness. But now what specifically is Paul thankful for? What are the specific, he said, whenever I pray for you, I thank God. But what is he thanking him for? What is going on in the Colossians life for which Paul is thankful? That's what we see in the next three, in the remaining verses and in points two, three, and four that we want to see this morning. The first thing we see is this. He is thankful for the testimony of gospel belief. He is thankful for the testimony of gospel belief that he sees in the Colossians. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Notice Paul here uh, brings something uh, together that we see in in a lot of his letters, namely the triad of faith, hope, and love. He loves putting those those three things together in his letters. And he does so uh, not just kind of throwing them together, but in a very logical way here. First, Paul says he is thankful for the Colossians' faith in Christ Jesus, their faith in Christ Jesus. What is faith? Well, a few weeks ago, I was talking with someone about a man named Soren Kierkegaard. Now, I'm sure every one of you have heard of him, right? Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher. No, I'm sure you haven't, probably, unless you've taken a philosophy class or read some obscure book. Uh, so let me just tell you, uh, Kierkegaard was a was a Danish philosopher and he said some very good things in criticism of the Danish church during his lifetime. He says, I go into church and I see uh, these well-to-do uh, so-called Christians sitting uh, back in the pews. Uh, he, he pictures them uh, reclining with their hands on their fat bellies, listening joyfully to what the preacher says and walking out the door and not changing anything in their life. And he says, in critique of them, if your life didn't change, you didn't believe a word that preacher said. That's good. I, I like that. But Kierkegaard also got some things wrong. He, he, said, he said faith, even Christian faith, is a sheer act of absurdity. It doesn't make sense. When, when Abraham was told to kill Isaac, doesn't make sense. There's no reason why he should do that. And yet he does it simply out of blind, absurd faith in God. Well, friends, that, that, that's not what the Bible teaches. You'll hear that sometimes. You'll hear some people say, well, you, you just go on faith. Can't see anything. Don't know anything. Just, just go on faith. As if it's like the nesty plunge. Okay? I mean, some of you know what that is. Some of you young people, I mean, you don't know anything about that. So don't worry about it. Ask your parents. Ask your friends, your grandparents, whatever it is. But it's just this kind of, don't know what's going to happen, but I'm, I'm going in the water. And, and the Bible says, no, 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 no. That's not what faith's about at all. You, you want to know what faith is, in a simple definition? It's this, faith is trusting in the promises of God. Did you get that? Faith is trusting in the promises. God never says, just, just do it. Just, just have faith to do it. No, no. He always tells you trust in a promise that I have made to you. That's what faith is. God makes a promise and we believe we trust that promise. Why? Because of His character. He's demonstrated that He is someone that we can put our confidence in. He will keep His promises. He is both holy and good toward His people. So that's what faith is. And Paul says he is thankful that these Colossians have done, in that sense, the most rational thing in the world. If God is a God who keeps his promises and he makes a promise to you, the most irrational thing is to say, no, I don't want to believe that. The most logical, rational thing is to say, sure, I can believe that. God's making the promise. Why can I not? And Paul says, I'm thankful because that's what you have done, Colossians. You have placed your faith in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, what we need to understand is that Christianity is not about myths and stories. It's not about spiritual knowledge somehow abstracted from real life. The faith that God calls us to have is rooted in a historical person, a real person who lived in real history, participated in real events. The Colossians understood this because they don't just have faith. They have faith in Christ Jesus. They put their confidence and trust in Him for salvation. And Paul could see that from their life. Because he says, I'm not just thankful that you had faith, I am also thankful that you have love for God's people. Jesus said that the way that the world would know that we are His disciples is the way in which we loved one another. They would look at it and say, nobody loves that way. That's insane. Why would somebody do that? I, I wouldn't do that. I don't know anybody else who would. Why are they doing that? It's because, it's because we're Jesus' disciples. He loved that way, so we should love that way. I, you know, so I, I've known about Chuck Colson for a long time. He, he was a guy who was actually uh, in Nixon's administration, was involved in the Watergate scandal, was found guilty, went to prison, uh, was born again there, and has now had an amazing testimony uh, and ministry in prison, work in prison fellowship. But just this week, something that I did not, re- I did not know. After he was saved and depressed sitting in jail, another very prominent political Christian found an obscure law that said an innocent man could finish out the prison sentence of a guilty man. I mean, who would ever think a law like that would be on the books? And this man offered to take Colson's sentence for him because he feared that Colson would commit suicide. He was so depressed in prison. Can you imagine that? I, I mean, to be honest, I don't know if I love you that much, okay? I mean, I'll just tell you. I mean, I mean you commit the crime, you do the time. That, that's my mindset, okay? But, but God doesn't treat us that way. Christ didn't treat us that way. And it was a sheer act of Christ-like love that would move that man to even make that offer for Colson. And, and Paul says this is, the, this is the kind of love that is evident in your life, which shows you have genuine faith in Christ. You have love for all the saints. You know, the Apostle John, in some sense, applied this verse of John thirteen thirty five, where Jesus says, everybody will know you're my disciples if you love me. Uh, Jesus' best friend, John, he, he puts a finer point on it. And he says, don't go around saying you love God if you don't love his people. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. If you don't love God's people, then you, you should not have confidence that you really love God like you think you should. And thankfully, the Colossians did. So Paul is thankful. He is thankful that he heard of the Colossians. They were truly God's people. They have a sincere faith in Christ. Then they have an evident love for His people. And how was that produced? Why do they have this kind of life? Notice what Paul says. They have faith and love because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. Verse 5. I think if you ask many people about hope, they would probably reverse what Paul says there. They would say hope comes from the consequences of this life, of a life of faith and love. If I am actively trusting Christ, if I'm actively loving people, then I have hope that I will be with God in heaven. Right? I mean, I think a lot of people would say that. And Paul flips it. Paul completely turns it. he says, because you have the hope of heaven, because you have the certain hope of an eternity with God, that means you can now, in this life, live faithfully and lovingly before God. How, How does this hope come? It comes through the gospel. The gospel says, it's not what you do to make yourself right with God, it's what God has done for you. God has done salvation. It is His strong arm that has won it for you. Therefore, when He makes the promise, He can keep it. If the promise was, keep believing and you'll be saved, that's not much of a promise. That's not much of a promise. Because everybody that I know can't live that way. We falter in our faith. We get wobbly and shaky and we fall down. Sometimes we completely go off the rails. And if it was up to us, then Not much of a promise. But God says, I have secured salvation. I sent Christ. I am the one who ensured your sins were propitiated on that cross and that Christ was raised back to life forever as the perfect intercessor and mediator that you need to be right with me. Therefore, you can have confidence and a sure hope when you trust Him, you are my child forever. And one day when I come back, you will be with me. When you have that kind of hope, Paul says, then you can continue to live a life of faith and a life of love because nothing else matters. The most important thing in your life is set. You are God's. You are His and He is yours. Paul looks at all of this. Their faith, their hope, their love. And he says, I am thankful every time I pray for you because of these things. And ultimately, what he says is, these things are simply evidence that the gospel has been at work and growing in you. And so more broadly, not just with them, but in the whole world, the third thing we see is that Paul says, I am thankful for the evidence of gospel growth. I am thankful for the evidence of gospel growth. He says, these things have come because you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Which has come to you, verse 6, as indeed in the whole world it has come. And it is now bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. From the outset, notice how Paul refers to the gospel. It is the grace of God in truth. Now that word causes a big problem for people today. And it causes a big problem for people back in Paul's day. Not that they were opposed to the idea of truth. But what happens when my truth is contrary to your truth? Then what do we do? When I say this is right and you say, no, that's wrong, this opposite thing is right, what happens? Well, we might just agree to disagree. You believe that? I think you're wrong. I believe this. Let's debate it, but we're still friends. That doesn't happen today, though, does it? Not usually. People are fired from jobs, they're kicked out of universities... People go to war over those kinds of things. Literally, countries going to war. And frankly, this idea of the gospel being truth also caused problems for Christians in Paul's day in the first century as well. Do you realize that people in the first century actually called Christians atheists? Why? Because they said there are no pantheon of gods out there. There's one God. One God. That's it. And and the pagan people of the world said, are you crazy? You guys are atheists, man. You don't even believe in the gods. What's the matter with you? That's a reversal from today, isn't it? And they were harassed because of it. More than that, because of their so-called atheism, they were viewed as a larger threat to the community as well. Christians didn't participate in the pagan feasts that went on in their cities, which meant they didn't contribute to the economy of the city. They didn't go to the temple and put in the temple tax and, 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 and engage in that kind of uh, public worship. Nor did they support the idol industry for household gods. Because of these things and many others, Christians were often labeled, quote, haters of humanity. Haters of humanity. Why? Because they believed the truth that said the pagan world was wrong. And therefore, they would not participate in what was wrong. In this way, the world of the first century is not much different than ours. Anyone who believes the gospel and claims it to be true will invariably stand against the stream of culture. Because the truth of the gospel renders the world's thinking as untrue. It is fundamentally wrong. It's not just different. It's not just another way, a, a, a sideways path. It is fundamentally false. And people don't like that. People don't want to hear that. And so when we say, no, even though the government is telling us, spend, 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 boost the economy, get us going, and we say, no, we're going to save, 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 so we can help out poor brothers and sisters in Christ and send much more to the mission field so other people can be saved, we're going to be viewed as bad citizens. More than that, when our allegiance to Christ outweighs public morality... We will be called haters of mankind because we will say, we love you, but your lifestyle is wrong. Homosexuality is wrong. Infidelity is wrong. Adultery is wrong. Killing babies who are not yet born in the mother's womb is wrong. And yet because we are standing against the popular truth of the culture, we will be called haters of humanity. You hate those people. When in reality we're saying, no, we we love them and want them to come to a knowledge of the truth. The gospel is truth and it cuts across the grain of society. Nevertheless, despite all the trouble that it brought, people were still believing the truth, both today and in Paul's day. He says, this gospel has come to you and has also come to the whole world and both in you and out of the world it is bearing fruit and growing. Friends, this is what happens when the gospel is proclaimed. People believe and their lives are changed. Not because the message is easy. Not because we're eloquent and cool and fashionable. It's because God says that the gospel is invested with His power for salvation. He has he has invested in the message of the cross a liberating power that comes with His Spirit to open the blindness of men's eyes and give them life and produce within them faith, love, and hope. Paul says this gospel is therefore growing among the Colossians as well as the outside world. And so I think what Paul is saying is this, look, you don't need anything else. You don't need something for a spiritual rush. You don't need to move on to something else for fullness of life. True spiritual growth comes by believing in the gospel. Full stop. Full stop. Certainly we can and should deepen in our understanding of what the Bible says, but ultimately every teaching the Bible gives, every story, every proverb, every song, it all culminates and coalesces in the message of the cross in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It all hangs together. So in that sense, we never get past it. We never get past it. Furthermore, it's by hearing the gospel again and again that we are strengthened in our faith because we are seeing again and again the glory of Christ. And the more we see the glory of the one who took on flesh and though perfect was treated as the worst sinner in our place so that we could be freed from our sin and its penalty, then the more we will come to love him. And the more that we love him, the less we will love sin. Loving him means worshiping him, spending time with him. And the the thing that you worship and spend time with is the thing that you will become like. So the more we love and worship, serve, and are with Christ, abiding in him, the more we will be transformed to look like him. Real spiritual growth doesn't come through programs or events or special spiritual knowledge, but through the sharing of the gospel. Sharing the gospel produces spiritual life in those who have never heard of Christ as they believe, and it also matures the life that is in God's people as they hear again and again and continue to believe in Christ. This is why Paul says it is bearing fruit and growing both in the world as well as among the Colossians. This is what he saw, and this is what he was thankful for. He was thankful for the persistence of this growth. But the last thing I want to see is this. How did this gospel come to them? This is the last thing Paul is thankful for, the faithfulness of gospel workers. Paul says to the Colossians uh, that they heard and understood the gospel because they learned it from Epaphras, verse 7, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on, on your behalf, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now last week we saw Paul didn't start the church at Colossae. Uh, He'd only heard of their faith and is now writing to encourage them. How did they hear the gospel? Again, Paul tells us it came through Epaphras. It came through Epaphras. He tells us that they learned it from Epaphras. We've already been told that the gospel is truth, and here we're told that it is learned. When we share Christ, we are not sharing a vague feeling, we're not sharing a spiritual experience. We're not sharing a deeper emotional life. We are sharing truth, information, news that is to be understood. We are teaching a set of facts, facts about Jesus. Now understand, the gospel is more than just an intellectual project, though. The gospel is is more than just raw knowledge. James, again, says that the the demons believe the gospel in the sense that they, they believe the facts are true. They have right theology. The problem is, it doesn't mean anything for them. They, they, they have not just understood it. I mean, they have just understood it, but they have not trusted in it. They have not banked their life on it. When that happens, when that clicks, the head and the heart and the Christian are united in such a way that faith reaches out and grabs hold of that truth and appropriates it for our life. That's the difference between just, just understanding the gospel and believing The gospel. And that's what Epaphras did. He taught the gospel in that way. Now understand. Understand who Epaphras was. Don't let this escape you. He is not an apostle. He is not a missionary. He is not a pastor. He did not go to a rabbinic school, a college, or a seminary. He didn't even have online course credit. This man was a pagan businessman who heard the gospel in Ephesus and was so moved by Christ, was so gripped by the the message of the one true God who would live and die for him, that when he went back to his hometown, he didn't just pray that Paul would come there. He didn't just pray that God would somehow save other people. He got busy sharing his faith. He got busy telling people about Christ. I think the clear implication is that even as people in Colossae heard Epaphras and were saved to the point that a church sprung up and was growing and was faithful and was reproducing, they were making disciples, the point is sharing Christ is not something that's left to the professionals. There is no professional evangelist upon which the whole of Christianity rests. Christianity is built and maintained and grown by people sharing their faith. Average people, average Christians, regular Joes and Janes, saying, I love Christ so much for what he's done for me. I've got to tell somebody about this. I want them to know this truth and have this experience with me. Sharing Christ is something that every Christian should be involved with. If you have heard the gospel and believed, you are qualified to share it. You understand that? If you have heard the gospel and believed, then you are qualified to share it with someone else. Notice Paul says that that in this process, Epaphras was a faithful minister. Now, what does that mean? How is he a faithful minister? How about this? Paul thinks he's faithful because he's actually doing time with him in prison in Rome. Just, how, how do you know that? Well, because Colossians didn't just come by itself. It came with another little letter as a writer called Philemon, which we looked at several months ago. And in there, in there right at the end, Paul says, Also, Epaphras sends his greetings. He is my fellow prisoner. See, all along, Paul had... Paul had shared with Epaphras the gospel. Epaphras had gone back. He saw this church growing as he shared the gospel, and he became invested, loving those people. And so when the threat came, Epaphras said, I've got to do something. I'm not the pastor. I'm not an apostle. I don't have authority. I need need help to come in. So what does he do? Epaphras, by foot, certainly partly by ship, perhaps by horse or donkey, travel somewhere between 1,200 and 1,300 miles to get from the city of Colossae to the city of Rome, where he he talks and talks and talks with people until he finds Christians who can point him to Paul, who was in prison. And whether because of his association with Paul or whether because he got busy with gospel work while he was looking for Paul in Rome, he got thrown in the clink right alongside Paul. And it's from there he says, Paul, I finally found you. I need to tell you what's going on in the city of Colossae with my brothers and sisters. Can you write to them and encourage them? Friends, again, that that is faithful ministry. Not done by a professional. Not done by somebody with, with formal training, but by somebody who loves Christ and so loves his people. Someone who is so captivated by the gospel that going... In the first century, you think about the days and weeks it would have took to go 12 to 1,300 miles. That was nothing for them. To leave behind their business, to close up doors, to wonder, well, I hope my family will be safe while I'm gone. To leave all of it behind in order to go and get the Apostle Paul to write a letter and pray for his brothers and sisters in Christ. That is the transformative effect that the gospel should have on our lives. That is the kind of effect that Paul was deeply thankful for. So how do you spend your time praying for the church? Do you pray for the church? Do you ever express your thanks for the church? Not just that they are healthy and safe, but do you look at God's people and see evidence of the gospel at work in them and so thank God for it? More than that, though, we shouldn't just be thankful for gospel fruits. We should also seek them for ourselves. We should seek to be faithful ministers of the gospel, sharing Christ with one another and the world, so that the gospel might grow and bear fruit and bring change both inside the church and in those outside the church as they hear, believe, and are brought into our fellowship, even as we ourselves continue to throw our lives onto the rock that is Christ, trusting Him for everything. Giving evidence to that faith by loving one another so deeply that the world's mind is blown and they cannot comprehend why we love each other so much. All the while, all the while because we have a certain hope, a secure future with God that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we are so thankful for Your Word. We are thankful for not just the lofty heights that it takes us to in our thinking and our feelings, but in the nitty-gritty of life where we see how differences can be made and examples are shown for us to follow. Father, we pray that all these things would coalesce in our thinking and our feeling, that, Father, we would be reminded not just of our responsibilities, but the joy that we have in Christ, and that that gospel truth would be the power that motivates us to move out into the world, to seek gospel growth not just in ourselves, but in those that have never heard. And in all of this, God, help us to have a gospel calibrated vision that sees the evidence of your work in others and never tires of giving thanks for it. Father, this is our prayer this morning. We know that you can, in fact, only you can can do only you can do these things. It's so in Jesus' name we ask them. Amen.